I had a preacher's nightmare today, and that is I came to worship at the 8.30, normally just check that my Bible and my sermon notes are there, and they weren't. So uh, give it up for my wife for rushing home to get them. Thank you, Ronell. Um, so I so appreciate that, but I'm actually really looking forward to preaching on just two verses today as we continue our Hebrew series. Sometimes we preach longer passages of Scripture, but today we are just going to preach two. A Puritan called Thomas Goodwin in 1651 wrote about a thousand-page book on these two verses. How about that? Imagine. He drilled down. We're going to drill down, but not as far as Thomas Goodwin. And he said this. He said, imagine if you had a friend who took your hands and placed them on the heart of Christ so that you knew what his beating heart was like. And then he said, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is that friend. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 is that friend. And I trust that as we read this and as I preach it, it'll be like the Spirit taking your hands and placing them on the heart of Christ so that you are reminded of what His heart is towards you. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Do you remember last week, Ryan preached from this chapter, the previous verses, and he preached about Jesus, our Sabbath rest. And he reminded us that there remains for the people of God a Sabbath rest, which is more than just taking off a day to rest. It's more than just heaven, although it includes heaven. It is actually a life of peace for the restless. That was the invitation. And there was a warning that we, like the wilderness generation under Moses, we might experience the power of God and the provision of God and yet still fall short of entering into that promised rest. And they fell short because of unbelief and disobedience. And so there was this call to, to mix the hearing of the Word of God with faith and obedience. That actually the promise of rest requires a mixing of the Word of God with faith and obedience on your part. I am gonna do my best under the power of the Spirit of God, but I'm asking you that what's preached, you would mix it with faith that you wouldn't just be sermon grading me. Oh, I'll give that a seven out of 10. That actually 
God is grading us all in terms of the way we receive. Not because He's judgy, but because He longs for us to mix the preached word with faith that we might enter into His rest. Remember those beautiful words from Jesus in Matthew 11, where He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. He doesn't say, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and one day after a life of crushing anxiety and terrible restlessness, eventually when you get to heaven, you will experience rest. He doesn't say that. He actually offers it to us now. And that's good news. It's not to say that we will never experience anxiety. We will never experience restlessness. But that promise of rest is for us this side of heaven. And that's good news, isn't it? It will ultimately be fulfilled in heaven, but it is available for us now. But it requires that we mix it with faith and obedience. And I want us to say today, as we preach on Jesus the high priest from these two verses, that the confidence that you and I can have, that we will in fact enter into Jesus' promised rest, the great confidence is that He is a great high priest. And He is approachable and sympathetic and available to you and I every moment of the day. That's the confidence we have. It's not like, man, I've got to enter into this rest. Otherwise, it's actually saying, whoa, that's a big promise. Will I or won't I? The confidence is that we have a great high priest. Now, remember that this was written to a Jewish audience who understood high priests in the Bible, and, then, and they're prominent in the Bible. And one of the things they're prominent for doing is on the Day of Atonement, they would offer a sacrifice, atoning for the sins of the people. And here, the writer of the Hebrews is writing saying, you had high priests, but, but there's only one great high priest, Jesus. And in fact, it's, it's the very first time Hebrews mentions the word Jesus before He is called the Son of God or the Christ. But here, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, the Son of God, it's Jesus. He is the great high priest. Amongst all of the other high priests, He's the only great high priest. And He redefines the office of high priest. How does He redefine the office? I know you're asking. Well, firstly, He doesn't offer sacrifices once a year using a lamb or a ram. He offered Himself as the spotless sacrifice, Hebrews says, once and for all. Can you say that with me? Once and for all. He's greater than any high priest. And we find in these two verses that there are other reasons why he's a great high priest that offers this promised rest. And that is that while he's passed through the heavens, he's still sympathetic to those on earth. The high priests in Scripture they would fall in one way. Either they'd be tempted by sin, they would be so kind of connected to the earth, to the world that they'd, they'd be tempted by sin and they'd sin and they'd disappoint God's people. Or otherwise they'd be so aloof and holier than thou that the people couldn't connect with them. But here, Jesus is described as having passed through the heavens and yet still being sympathetic with those 
who are on the earth. And we're gonna drill down on, on what that means, that, that he's passed through the heavens, but he's still with us in heart on the earth. And then there's another reason why he's a great high priest, and that is that he's tempted in every way, yet without sin. And I believe as we drill down on those things, it's gonna shine as fresh good news to you and I. Are you ready? Good. I remember probably mm, 2000 and about 20 years ago, uh, we just started leading our first church. We'd been on staff uh, at, at other churches, but we were, we were leading and I was getting used to kind of this lead pastor role and a Greek Orthodox family joined the church. And uh, the son, who was about 10, just looked up at me and he said, are you the priest here? Because you sure don't look like a priest. And I kind of had to think for a moment and go like, well, yeah, there, there's an aspect of me being priestly. I, I want to respect church traditions that, that, that see their pastor as, as a priest. There's, there's something about a leader in a church that is priestly. You're called to connect people to God. But I also rem remembered at that time going, oh no, he's expecting something from me that I can't give him. He's expecting me to be the mediator between him and God, and, and, and I'm not, Jesus is. And I remember in the same conversation, the father said to me, hey man, why don't you just like throw up a couple of prayers for me to the big guy upstairs, because I know he hears you. And I was just like, oh. See, that's, that's priest gone wrong. And I had to say, man, I will pray for you, but, but do you know that, that God doesn't hear me more than you? I'm not the mediator. I'm not, I don't have a hotline to God. And I think very subtly in church, even if we're not from traditions that's, that call their leaders priests, we, we subtly think of leaders as priests, as, as the mediator. And I wanna say, as, as leaders in a church, there are some things we can and should do for you. We can and should pray for you. We can and should preach the Word of God. We can and should counsel and, and carry empathy. We can and should be a model. But, but there's a way when it gets out of kilter, where we are expecting that person to do for us what only Christ can. And I wanna say, man, I can pray for you but I can't repent for you. I can't believe for you. I can't cleanse you of your sin. I can't ultimately usher you into the presence of God. Jesus can. And there's a sense in which I, I, I want us to adjust our hearts to honor those in our midst who are leading and pastoring, but to go, man, have I made someone a priest? And it might not be a pastor, it might be your favorite podcaster, it might be your favorite worship leader, where you're just like, man, I can't connect to God without this person. I wanna say if that's the truth, they become your priest. I was talking to Rachel Collins, our youth director, and she said, I often see it with, with the youth where they'll arrive and they're like, is Keaton here? Keaton's one of the youth, youth guys, you know, is Keaton here? And if Keaton's not there, it's like, oh gosh, man, how am I gonna, how am I gonna connect with God without Keaton here, you know? And in subtle ways, we, we do that. It's like, well, you know, is Sam here? Like, because, because Sam's my guy. Like, when, when Sam plays, I'm just like, whoa, get all the, whoa, man. 
I'm like, that's great. Like, like honor people who are, who are loving and, and compelling and anointed, but, but actually like, Sam's not your priest. I'm not, I'm not your priest. And so there is a beautiful challenge, but much more than that, an invitation to say, why is Jesus a great high priest? And why does he give us what no human can, even though we need human leaders, amen? But, but, but what does Jesus do for us that, that no human can? I can pray for you when you are in temptation, but I can't actually be with you at 3 a.m. when you're like, whoa, man, I'm just gonna get onto the internet and do whatever. Actually, we need a great high priest to whom we have access every minute of the day. So we're gonna look at these two truths. Why is Jesus such a great high priest? Why is that good news for us? What does that call us to do and to be? And firstly, why? Because he has heavenly status, yet remains or maintains human sympathy. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So the writer is saying, Jesus who, who lived sinless life here, who died a death in our place on the cross, who rose again, who ascended, has actually passed through the heavens and He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of grace. Remember Hebrews 1 verse 3, when we started this series, it says, after making purification for sins, that's, that's the priestly activity, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished, my, my work, it's paid in full. My, my, my priestly work on earth is done. But what Hebrews is saying is, his heavenly work is not done. And I think the church is very much like, I know what Jesus did, but the church isn't as clear on like, what's he doing now? What's he doing now? Hebrews says, he's priesting. And that priesting is a few things. We'll find later that it's, it includes praying for us. But we also find here that it is sympathizing with us. And that's beautiful. He has priestly sympathy. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he's, he's seated at the right hand of the Father who's on the throne of grace. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. That's called a double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable. In other words, we do have a high priest who is able. Put that in the positive. Oh, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. I don't know why he did a double negative. That's actually bad grammar. But it's actually good to flip it on. Oh, we have a high priest who is at home with God in heaven. He's with his dad. He's finished his work on earth. But what the writer is saying is, Hear me, beloved, do not allow yourself to think that because Jesus has, has changed his address, that his heart is aloof from us. He's a great high priest because he's changed his address. He's at home in heaven, but his heart is still so drawn to us. Dane Audlin says, there's a, there's a witness about Jesus. 
There's an irresistible witness. When we are weak, he is drawn to us with sympathy. And his distance geographically does not equal a distance in his heart. And this is good news. In other words, and this is what Thomas Goodwin is saying, if you put your hands on the heart of Jesus, if you and I, 2,000 years ago, happened to live there and, and we met Jesus and, and we like caught His heart, what He's saying is that heart that we would have met here on earth, that's exactly the same heart still in heaven. It hasn't changed. It hasn't become distant. It hasn't become aloof. It's not like when we are weak and we are tempted, Jesus now, having been glorified, finished His work, says, oh, these miserable mortals, so pathetic, just so weak and full of temptation. Man, they should just be here in the throne room. Then they wouldn't get tempted. Don't fall into the trap of thinking Jesus has lost his humanity. Jesus is glorified. He's passed through the heavens. But why do you think Jesus kept his nail scars? You ever thought about that? Why? It's a reminder of suffering. And so he's sympathetic. He's saying, man, I remember what it was to suffer. I remember pain. I'm not suffering or in pain now, but I remember and therefore I sympathize with those who are. That's amazing good news. And I think so often in our Christian life, we think Jesus is drawn to us when we're strong. I'm doing well. I had a 25-minute devotional. I didn't lust last night. I managed to not have too many beers. I didn't lose my temper at the kids. Jesus must be near me. His heart must be moving towards me. But what this says is that his heart is actually moving towards you when you are weak. There is a solidarity with people in weakness. We have a high priest who is with us, who is sympathetic in weakness. And I think the good news about that is that means when we are weak, we can admit it to Jesus. We don't think he's, he's, he's rejected us and resisted us. Now you might be asking, well, what's the difference between sympathy and compassion? Because, because God is compassionate. It's not like Jesus is compassionate and the Father is cruel. No, the Father, the Spirit, God is compassionate, but sympathy is different. We have a high priest who is sympathetic, able to sympathize with our weakness. Sympathy is compassion plus experience. And Jesus, God the Son, is the only member of the Godhead that actually was incarnate, took on flesh. And so he doesn't just have compassion, he has sympathy for us. I, I know. Let me give you an example. All of us, I think, are really concerned about Ukraine, the Ukraine, Ukraine. And two days ago, um, I got an urgent message from a pastor I'd met uh, called Andre who's planted lots of churches in Ukraine and beyond. And it was an urgent message saying, please, will you pray? 
Andre is evacuating his church of 700. Can't tell you the, the, the city, but he's evacuating it. Please pray for, for protection and uh, for safe landing in the next country. I, I, I'm just like, I've met this guy, but actually I haven't been there so I can give compassion and pray. I can't give sympathy, I, I haven't been there. And then I found myself just thinking about Jesus. Jesus as a little boy, having Herod the king after his head. Jesus, Joseph and Mary have to flee to Egypt as refugees. And I go, Jesus doesn't just have compassion on Andre and the 700 and the other million refugees. He has sympathy because he was a refugee. He didn't have to do that. He's God. I mean, if Jesus had said, no, I'm not gonna be weak. I'm just gonna kind of plug into some of my deity because Jesus here was fully God on earth. But it says he, he, he actually laid aside his majesty and embraced weakness. He was in clothed with weakness. Jesus could have j just squashed Herod like a fly, one shot. But actually he embraced weakness so that he could sympathize with you and I in our weakness. Isn't that amazing? And we can say Ukraine, but what about the single mom whose child, yeah, California, is being bullied on the playground? I wanna say Jesus knew what it was to be bullied and can sympathize with her. Jesus was bullied by a king that he created for heaven's sake. Have you thought about the, the humble weakness of that? He could have just gone, Done, Herod. Or otherwise, I mean, think about us. We're, we're, we're in weakness in relationships, breakdown of, of relationships, and, and we feel betrayal, trust broken. How many of us feel betrayal and are tempted to really like lash out and retaliate? And Jesus experienced that weakness. I mean, you think he didn't know that Judas was gonna betray him? And yet like he went through it and then kissed him for heaven's sake. In other words, he experiences weakness. He placed himself, he clothed himself in weakness and he now can sympathize with you and I in weakness. Jesus had pimples. Jesus got tired and, and needed a nap. Jesus got hungry. You know, Jesus had below average looks. Even you feel like, man, I'm in California and I've got kind of below average looks. And I'm in like the body beautiful, face beautiful California. I mean, you don't have to put up your hand, but I'm just saying, <laughs> most of us wrestle with that. You know, Jesus, Jesus could have come to earth like Zeus, the Greek God. But Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty or majesty that we should desire him. He was like one from whom men turned their faces. He, wasn't, he wouldn't have been on the front cover of men's health, beloved. Weakness. He understood what it was to be exasperated by his friends, to be lonely, to be shamed, to be falsely accused, to be rejected by his hometown. He got drained 
He felt frustrated. So that he could sympathize with us in our weakness, even though he is at home in heaven glorified. Isn't that amazing? I hope that gives you courage to admit weakness to Jesus. And so the Bible says here, because he sympathizes with us in our weakness, let us hold fast our confession. Or what, or what confession? Well, firstly, let us hold fast the confession that Jesus was fully human and that he actually did experience weakness and that he can actually sympathize with you and I in our weakness. Don't lose that. Don't allow trials and suffering and temptation to erode your confidence that just because Jesus is in heaven now, he's aloof from you. Don't, don't buy into that because if you and I do, then we'll find another high priest and we'll say, oh, please can you sympathize with me? And look, community is wonderful when we gather in sympathy and empathy, absolutely. But I wanna tell you, I think I'm quite a sympathetic person, but I run out after a while. And that can really disappoint you if you're expecting me to be your high priest. But I wanna say Jesus never runs out of sympathy. Never. And so hold fast your great confession that He is a sympathetic high priest drawn to you in weakness. Secondly, other piece of beautiful news from this passage. He has been tempted in every respect, yet without sin. That is scandalous. That is an absolute scandal that Jesus, the Son of God, though sinless, was tempted in every respect and yet didn't sin. I, I wanna just push down on that. Because what is the difference between sin and temptation? Because sin doesn't equal temptation. James says that God tempts no one, but, but we are enticed by our own desires. Let's just sit with temptation for a while. Temptation is when there's a moment when desire entices us towards wrongdoing. And that could be many or any thing. It could be to lust. It could be to gluttony. It could be to lash out and retaliate in anger. It could be to grumble and complain. It could be to love money. It could be to lie, to get high, to get bitter, steal, to cheat, manipulate, gossip, catastrophize. I, I want to say, I mean, how many of us have been tempted as we've watched the 24-hour news cycle to move from concern and compassion to actually fear, anxiety, catastrophe. I found that in my life. It's just like, oh, World War III, here we go. And then it just occupies your mind and you keep on. I never watched the news. Now I've been watching the news. And we know that there is a line and I'm not saying you're sinning if you watch the news, but you know what it is to get into that catastrophizing and there's a line that you and I cross when kind of this thought, 
crosses, this desire, and you feel enticed. And then there's the moment that you actually receive that into your heart and your mind and you begin to dwell on it, right? Martin Luther, years ago, hundreds of years ago said, you cannot stop the birds flying over your head, but you can stop them from nesting in your hair, right? You can chuckle a little bit, don't ice the kicker. You're icing the kicker. I'm trying to kick this thing. I'm kidding you, sort of. But you know there's, there's, there's a moment at which you go like, oh no, not only do I have a moment of, of enticement, but actually now I'm, I'm receiving this into my heart and my mind. And you know that at that point, it's just a matter of time until you act out on that. That's why Jesus said, you know, oh, it's, it's, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But even if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery. He's talking about that line when we actually receive this thing. Now, I don't know all of you, but, but each of us, I mean, as I'm speaking about this thing, you know your kryptonite, you know, you know the thing. And, and sometimes it's like heavy graphic stuff and other times it's super basic stuff like getting into fear by dwelling on something. I kind of joke, but it's not a joke. I, I say I would, I would tend in terms of my temptation to backslide to a bakery before a bar. Just because actually like by God's kindness, I'm not super tempted by alcohol, but croissant. <laughs> now you're talking. I mean, I can even say it properly. And I've found in myself, and I'm not saying it's always sin to eat that, but I'm saying for me, it normally is. And I'll go to a coffee shop, I love coffee, and there's no way to sin with coffee, no matter how many you have, I'm joking. <laughs> but I'll go in and I'll, I'll know, like I'll, I'll say, man, I'll, I'll have a flat white. And because uh, that's the best kind of drink, you know, flat white. And then my eye will just catch that ch cream cheese Danish there. And on a good day, I'll, I'll just, just, just a flat white and a water, please. On a, on a weak day, I'll just go, how, how are your cream cheese Danishes? <laughs> and I know at that point, I've crossed a line. Because have you ever met a barista that said they're really bad? <laughs> Never. They always say, they're really good, sir. And at that point, it, it, it hasn't just crossed over my head, it's nested in my hair. I'm done. I'm like, mm, I'll have one of those. And what the writer of the Hebrews is saying is Jesus never crossed that line. He had the birds flying over his head all the time. Satan tempted him in the wilderness. And then Satan was tempting him in other ways, tempting him in the garden of Gethsemane but he never crossed that line. And that's good news for you and I. And I wanna say, if you look at the temptation of Jesus, he, he was tempted in very graphic ways. When it says in every respect, some of you say, well, he didn't have a smartphone. You know, he, he didn't have, have the temptation of porn, so he couldn't. No, but he was tempted in such graphic ways. I mean, Satan says, bow down and worship me. Can you think of something more repulsive to Jesus. 
You think of the most repulsive thing you've been tempted to do or have done. And Jesus has been tempted in most graphic, repulsive ways. Bow down and worship that snake. But, but seemingly there was a moment. Or when Satan took him to the roof of the temple, he says, throw yourself down. Those of you who've been tempted to despair of life in the most graphic ways, do you understand Jesus actually understood, he entered into that kind of graphic temptation. Tempted in every respect. And then the most basic ways, Satan says, hey, turn those, those stones into croissant, I mean bread. I mean, that, that's not like horrific if you eat some bread, but, but, but it was temptation because he was supposed to be fasting and, and eat instead of fasting. You think about Matthew 16 where, 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 where Peter comes and says, oh no, you're not gonna go to the cross. You're not gonna go to the cross. You're gonna, not gonna die as a weak criminal. And Jesus just says, get behind me, Satan. You know, like, like the birds were flying over his head at that time. And it must be so tempting to go, yeah, you're right. I'm not gonna suffer and die. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna take over Rome with power. But he actually goes, no, I'm not gonna let that thought rest in my hair. Get behind me, Satan. Most basic ways. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if it's possible, take, take this cup, but not my will, but yours. The most basic form of temptation is to say, God, I wanna do my thing, not your thing. He's been tempted in, in every respect and yet without sin. It's, it's, it's beautiful for us. Don't fall into the trap of thinking he doesn't understand what it is to have birds, thoughts, temptations. And I think one of the things we, we might say was, well, but he didn't sin, so he doesn't understand the real shame and agony of having sinned. So maybe he doesn't understand. C.S. Lewis is so helpful on this. He just says, no, 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 no. Actually, because Jesus resisted temptation, Hebrews says, to the point of shedding blood. In the garden, he sweated drops of blood resisting temptation. He's actually experienced temptation more intensely than you and I who gave into it. Let me give you an example. Remember when we were outside a year ago? How many of you were there when we had the easy ups in the sun? Put up your hand if you were there. Wow, very few of us. That's awesome. It, it was kind of the good old days, but it was also the bad old days. Because sometimes the, the, the Santa Ana winds would come up and people would try and anchor down those, those easy ups. And imagine if like after 10 minutes of anchoring down the easy up, the guy just gets tired and just sits down and lets the easy up blow away. Well, he's experienced that wind for 10 minutes. Compare it to the, to the person who just anchors it for 90 whole minutes and stands there keeping shade over everyone. They have not given up, but they've experienced temptation much more deeply than the person that gave up, right? That's Jesus. That's Jesus, so don't buy into the thing, oh, you don't understand. No, he has experienced temptation much more deeply than any of us. Plus, what was at stake? Imagine the pressure, what's at stake if he had sinned? So the good news is this. We don't just need a sympathetic high priest. We need a holy high priest. Because if we just had a sympathetic high priest, it would be awesome. He's like, 
You jacked up, I'm also jacked up. Let's be all jacked up together. That's what sometimes happens in church, doesn't it? We have this like, oh, let's just be authentic, man. Let's just keep it real. And we find people who are, who are tempted in the same thing as us. And we just like have this like, like sympathy huddle. I'm just saying, that's great. We need much more than that. Imagine if I turned to Ronell in the first service and I just said, love, I, I've lost my, I've left my notes and my Bible at home. And she's like, ah, oh, I feel such sympathy for you. <laughs> I don't need sympathy. I need rescue. Please rescue me. And she did because she's more high priestly than me. And everyone said, amen. And, and, but, but here's the thing, beloved, you don't just need sympathy, you need rescue. You, know, you don't need someone to jump into the hole of your sin with you. You need someone who's got out of the hole so that they can pull you out. And that's Jesus. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. The beautiful thing about that is that enables us to be vulnerable to Him in the midst of our mess. I sat with a friend this week and he's profound. He just said, you know, there's a difference between, between transparency and vulnerability. I said, what? He says, transparency is when you get your whole house in order and then you pull out the curtains, right? Vulnerability is when you let people see what's inside when it's still a mess. And it's hard to be vulnerable. We wanna be transparent. Let, let me just get the thing in order and then I'll come to Jesus or come to community. But, but to be vulnerable is to say, Jesus, you are sympathetic. You're actually drawn to me in my weakness, but you're not just sympathetic, you are holy and therefore you can rescue me. And so there's an exhortation as we land, beautiful exhortation. Therefore, wherefore? Because we have a sympathetic high priest who's tempted in every way, yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need, in our time of need. So we don't just go, oh, Jesus, it's so great that you're sympathizing with me. We say, Jesus, I need help. <laughs> I need rescue and that is available to me. And it's two kinds of help that we receive, which is amazing. It's mercy and it is grace. Boldly approach the throne of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. What does that mean? Well, firstly, it means boldly. Boldly means boldly. Like I read it in the Greek and it just meant boldly. <laughs> and you say, well, how can I boldly? That, that seems like it's, it's, it's presumptuous to boldly come. But if we have honestly understood what Jesus has done to make a way to the throne of grace, it's arrogant not to come boldly. You don't, you don't say, well, well, I've sinned, so I can't come boldly. No, but if it's for mercy that you to come boldly. It's expecting that you've sinned because you're coming to mercy. Now, I know for some people, it's, it's a throne of judgment 
And I wanna say, if you are not in Christ, it is a throne of judgment. But if you put your faith in Christ and say, actually, I'm coming, not because I'm so good, but because you're so good, then actually I can find mercy and I can come boldly for mercy. Why do we come for mercy? We come for mercy because we do sin. And so Hebrews, talking about temptation, makes provision for when we do sin, come boldly for mercy. I'm a sports guy and when I first arrived uh, here, I, I took part in a softball team. I don't understand softball. I don't understand that weird like thing, uh, but, but I, I took part because it was an American sport, you know? And one of the things that, that, that was so interesting to me and actually beautiful is how often people said, my bad, my bad. Like, like if they struck out or, or dropped a catch, my bad, my bad. I was like, what is my bad? And then to top it all, people would say, you're good. And I'm like, you're not good. <laughs> you just struck out, you're not good. What is this thing? My bad, you're good. It's kind of like Valley Girl kind of vibe. You're good, sorry. And, and, and then I realized this. A person, when they were saying my bad, they were saying, it's my fault and I don't blame anyone else. And when they were saying, you're good, they weren't actually saying, you're good. They're saying, you're not good, but it's good. Like, we're not gonna hold it against you. You're actually bad, but you're good. <laughs> but that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And the problem is we don't get the gospel because we come saying, my good, my good, I'm good. And if I'm bad, it's someone else's fault. And God's just saying, I'm just waiting for you to say, my bad, so that I can say, you're good. And when I say, you're good, it's not because you're good. It's because Jesus is good and you're in Him. Yes. That's the gospel. But we've got to say, my bad. And then we come for mercy and we get the merciful, you're good. I pronounce you forgiven and righteous because you're in my son who is good. But it's not just for mercy that we come, it's also for grace. And you say, to find mercy and grace in time of need, is that just the same thing and in other words? No, it's actually different. This grace is the grace that's spoken of in Titus 2. The grace of God has appeared to all men to teach us to say no to ungodliness. So the mercy is when we have actually messed up and we need pardon, the grace is when we are tempted and we need power to resist temptation and both are available at the throne of grace. And I think we're good at coming for mercy, most of us, but we're not so good at coming for grace. And grace is power to resist when you are on the hot night of temptation. Say, so God, I'm coming for grace. To say no to ungodliness. Both are available to you and I. And that means that we can have rest because we have such a merciful high priest. We can charge the throne of grace because he is there to find mercy and grace, which ultimately re results in rest for our souls. Let's pray. Jesus, this seems almost too good to be true. 
but we put our hands, as it were, on your heart. And we mix this word with faith. And we say we believe. Help our unbelief. Before I call up JD to lead us in communion, I just want to ask if, if there's anyone here who needs today to say, my bad. Like I take responsibility, it was my fault. And I need pardon, I need to hear God's, you're good. And today you're saying, I repent of my sin and put my faith in Jesus' saving work. If that's you, won't you quickly put up your hand? I'd love to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, pour out your mercy and grace. Pour it out, Lord, in abundance. Thank you, Lord. This is why you died. This is why you sat down with joy that people would trust in your work. So won't you meet and forgive and save and draw near and cleanse Jesus like only you can. Amen.